Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to, excuse me, turn with me to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms in Psalm 136. Psalm 136. We've been going through the history of the Bible and taking our time going through this series, hitting it bit by bit. And now we're going to do a little bit of a fast forward in time as we just cover a lot of history all at once, just giving a snapshot. Now remember before we had taken our time to define our terms. We had to taken some time to explain about the different texts that we have the Antiochian text that was the preserved text. And then we have the corrupted text that had been corrupted by Origen and the Alexandrian text. And then we had watched as we have two lines that are traveling from Jerusalem and taking a different path, both of them leading to England. And tonight we're getting to them actually getting into England as both of these sets of texts make their way and see what God does inside of the country of England. Now before we do this, as we start talking about translations and we we had talking a lot before about the preserved text. Now we start to get a little bit into translations. And so in order to teach this, I want to go ahead and teach you something about the process of translations and how we see it in our Word of God. And so with that, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. And notice with me, if you wouldn't mind, starting at verse number 1. Psalm 36, <laughs> and starting at verse 1. That is where I'm at. It says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse number three, Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his forever to him that is stretched out above the earth upon the waters for his mercy endureth forever you could turn that on back there the sun <coughs> and with that verse number seven to him that made the great lights to him <coughs> to the sun to rule the day for his mercy endureth forever the moon and the stars to rule by night for his mercy endureth forever. Before we dive into it, let's take some time to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God, and we thank you for whom you you would just help us to have a better understanding and a better appreciation of how you got the Word of God into our own language, and that we would learn, we'd be excited, and that this would be a help 
into our study and appreciation of you. Lord, I recognize I need your help tonight. Just fill me with your spirit. Guard my throat. Guard my mind. Guard my tongue. Let everything be done pleasing to you. And let it be set in order the way that you want it to be ordered to encourage the faith of your people. And in your name we pray. Amen. Hold on one second. I was told something else. Technical difficulty, which will be edited out. Good. Now we are on. Good. Now you can hear me? All right. Good. Well, we just got through reading Psalm 136. Which, if you would notice, at the very end of each one of these segments here, we have something important marked. Let's try to cover here the idea of the italics that is found within the authorized version. Within the authorized version, you're going to find several passages that's written in italics. Now, sometimes people think that modern English, that the italics means that you just have to yell it. And so in Psalm 36, you would say, His mercy, or His mercy, endureth forever. It's not the idea that we're trying to place a special emphasis. On. In fact, this is something that the translators did to try to be honest about it. Now, this psalm here is like a museum art gallery depicting the history of the children of Israel. It gives a snapshot of each event. And so each verse is a snapshot. And then as you get further into it, it actually starts talking about the history of Israel. Verse number 11 talks about to him that smote Egypt in their firstborn for his mercy endureth forever and brought them out of Israel among them for his mercy endureth forever with a strong hand and a stretched out arm for his mercy endureth forever. And so with each one of these you'll have a little snapshot of the event in each one of these verses. Then under each piece if you can imagine a museum piece uh, an art piece of each piece depicted there's a bronze plaque at the very bottom of each one of these portraits that reads, for his mercy endureth forever. And so God does an event and you see for his mercy endureth forever. Then he does something else for his mercy endureth forever. Then you see something else. And every verse within Psalm 136 has this little plaque here, for his mercy endureth forever. Now notice the word endureth in each verse is in italics. Now, this is going to be important. This shows that the translators were honest enough to show that this was not a word that was found in the original text. Now, what do I mean by this? We're not saying that the translators arbitrarily added a word and said, well, you know, this word would look good here or this would feel good here. But in fact, this word is added because it is necessary to get across the exact meaning of the passage. Now, translation is not simply just taking one word and replacing it with a similar word in a different language. In fact, we have to have something called linguistics. Linguistics is an important part of making sure that we get the correct translation and the correct meaning of whatever we're translating. So in dealing with translation, linguistics is the study of language to ensure the translation gets across the exact meaning to the audience of the translated language. Now, before I give the example, let's just say in English. English, we have a toothbrush, right? But if you're going to translate it into Spanish, it's going to take three words to convey the one word that we use. 
That's just a differences of language. Every language has a difference. And in order to get across the same meaning, you're going to have to use that meaning to get across. You're going to have to get across. Inside of Hebrew, there's a word for mercy. That's why it's not italicized. In Hebrew also we have the word forever. And so that is listed in the Bible. However, inside of Hebrew, the Hebrew language, when you put those words together, mercy and forever, it also conveys the meaning of mercy endureth forever. And so for the translators to get the exact meaning accomplished, they also have to add that word. You could do a word for word translation and just translate it mercy forever, but it would not get the meaning that was intended by that passage. Does that make sense? Now the translators wanted to be honest with it That is why they put that word in italics to try to say this is a word that was not in the text originally. However, we have to have this word if we're going to convey the exact meaning that was meant by that passage. Sort of make sense? Good. So the word endureth has to be included even though the word is added to get across that meaning. Now, when you go through the authorized version, you're going to find many places with italics, and all of them are the same thing. They're, the translators were being honest, saying we did not have the word in the manuscript, but that word is necessary in order to convey the correct meaning. These were not just added words. These are words that have to get across. For example, let's take another one. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now notice the italicized words here. It says, Hereby we perceive we the love of God. Notice the word of, or the phrase of God is in italics. That means that the translators had to supply those words in order to get across the exact meaning. Does that make sense? Now, this <laughs> teaches us stuff. Inside of 1 John 3.16, we learn a couple things. We first of all learn that we're certain of God's love, for God loved us. That's what the verse said. We also know who it is that loved us, for the love of God. It is God that loved us. Now hold on. We also have a great statement of the deity of Christ, because it said, hereby we know us the love of God, And it explained that he laid down his life for us. Well, now we could see that Christ is God and Christ laid down his life for him. But it was God that meant to it. Now, this is going to pay important in just a bit. By the way, if you're not in 1 John uh, 3.16, please turn there if you don't mind. Because that way you can look at it for yourself and don't have to rely off memory. Because I want to teach you something here. 1 John 3.16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we learn that God not only loved me, but God laid down his life for me. Does that make sense? Now, pay attention. In the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, it says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now that's a lot of pronouns there. Now you've got to try to figure out who's who. The authorized version took the time to explain of God. But notice this. Inside of 
the NIV, the New International Version, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now that's a true statement. However, it is going to change the meaning of the text. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, pay attention to this. <laughs> this doesn't tell me who Jesus is in the verse. Remember, the authorized version said the love of God. So we know it is God that died for us and that Jesus is God. So it doesn't tell us anything about the deity of Christ, which we have explained before. That's one thing they try to avoid. Now, if of God was supplied by the translators in the authorized version to give us the literal reading of the text, Jesus Christ, by the way, was also added by the NIV translators. Now, you say it's not in italics. I know that it was the authorized version that decided to be honest and let people know by italics. The other versions don't necessarily do that. The NIV does not do that. But the NIV also had to supply the words, Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't in the text. So the NIV doesn't italicize the words they supplied. Now secondly, this was also an optional matter. They chose to say Jesus rather than God. We understand that. Now, <laughs> notice what it says again. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he, God, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we see that God loved us and he, God, gave, down, gave his own life for us. This is the example that we are to lay down our lives for the brethren. Since God laid down his life, we have that example to lay down our life. Does that make sense? Now their version indicates that God loves us and sent someone else to die. Instead of sending himself, he sent someone else to die. You said, well, that's a... I understand, but understand that in many parts of their text, they don't say that Jesus Christ is God. They say he is a God. We pointed that out several times. So this changes the meaning of the text. That I loved you, so I'm going to send someone to die. I'm not going to die. I'm going to send someone else to die. But the example that's given is that we are supposed to follow the pattern of our father, right? So are we supposed to lay down someone else's life for the brethren? We know that that's carried out in practice in history, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, if God was supplied by the translators of the authorized version, and Jesus Christ was supplied by the translators in the NIV, how do we know which one is correct? The context of this passage will supply the word. The comparison at the end of the verse gives us the context. In order for me to love you like God loved me, I have to lay down my life because God laid down his life. God didn't send someone else to die. We know that God is the proper uh, thing to put in there because of the example that's being taught. Does that make sense? Now, I understand somebody said you're just swallowing at gnats and whatever else. But it becomes important later on because it's going to affect doctrine. We're going to see that it affects things. Jesus, he came himself, or he, God, came himself and died, then asked me in like manner not to send someone else to die, but for me myself to die in someone else's place. Now, while the italicized words are supplies, the correct words were supplied to show the meaning of the text. Now, let me show you something else, all right? Stop getting the details. 
let me show you something important. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 gives a prophecy, gives in a statement that later on Jesus Christ is going to quote. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make known or make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone but by every word that is proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now notice in the book of Deuteronomy that the word word is an italics. That means that it wasn't in the original manuscript, but it was supplied to get across the correct meaning. Does that make sense? And so this was an added word in Hebrew. Notice with me in Luke chapter 4 verse 4 where Jesus quotes this verse. And Jesus answered him saying, It is written that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now if you're looking at your text, you'll notice that it is not italicized in Luke. That means it was supplied in the Greek text. So in Deuteronomy 8.3 The word word is italicized, meaning it was necessary to understand the Hebrew, you had to add the word to make the text make sense. But in Luke 4.4, Jesus quotes the italicized word, meaning that he recognized that word should be there and it was the correct word that was supplied. So... In Hebrew, the word word was not given, but it was necessary for the meeting. Jesus quoted the verse and used the word word. That means the word word was in the Greek, and then it was also translated to English. Jesus didn't have any problems with italicized words. That's where I'm trying to get you here, is that these are necessary to get across the meaning because of language. And that Jesus Christ, as he is quoting Hebrew inside of Greek language, he quoted that italicized word. All right, I'm not getting in the sticks anymore. I'm just giving you a little thing that with translation, these are things are important because we can't just do word for word. We also at the same time have to get across the meaning inside of the words and make sure the correct meaning is across. This is an important thing of linguistics to get it across. So let's cover history now. The Bible into England. The pure word of God got into England with missionaries from Asia Minor. They made their way from Antioch and Syria into the Gallic region, which would now be known as France. As early as the first century, there are records in history of Europe that show that Christian missionaries arriving in the region as we now know as France. Now, I'm giving you a time frame, the first century. In the first century, guess what? John the Apostle is still alive. So while John is still alive, they have missionaries that have come from Antioch that have made their way all the way to France. In Colossians 1.23, it says, If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereby I, Paul, am made minister. Here he said, guess what? All of the gospel had been spread to the known world during the time of Colossians, which would include France. 
And so we're seeing that the, the gospel is spreading and is making its way across the continent. In Paul's day, about 30 years after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel had spread to every creature in the known world. That doesn't mean that everyone was saved, but everyone had the opportunity to hear the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved after hearing the gospel in their own language. What a great miracle. Now, without a doubt, many of them went back to their home countries and told others about the gospel. That makes sense, right? So we could see the gospel starting to spread. <laughs> and then in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everyone preaching the word. Now, after Stephen died, there was a great scattering of the people of the church of Jerusalem, and they went everywhere. So after the martyrdom, they scattered and they preached the gospel everywhere. Now, by the way, everywhere means everywhere. So we're seeing here biblically that the gospel is starting to spread, which would include inside of the continent of Europe. These missionaries carried up the gospel into the Gaelic region. <coughs> the Christianity of the ancient ancient Celtics and Britons were apostolic in nature. That means that someone actually went to England with the gospel. Their Bible was the old Latin. Remember that the Latin version was translated in 157 AD inside of Antioch and that those people had the old Bible, the good Bible. About 150 years after that, a man who was not a saint and wasn't a Roman Catholic, a man by the name of Patrick carried God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ up to the British Isles. And if you've never read the true story of uh, Patrick who went up there, what a great missionary he was. And by the way, he was not Catholic. The Catholics killed him and condemned him and then later on made him a saint because he was so popular inside of the British Isles. But he carried the gospel out to England. <laughs> From 14, uh, 410 to about 550, the ancient Britons were virtually displaced by the pagan Anglo-Saxons. And again, if you know anything about British history, what happens is their island gets conquered over and over and different people come and displace them and they get mixed in together. And then in 597, Pope Gregory sent a monk by the name of Austin or Augustine, he goes by both names to England, to try to convert the inhabitants. Austin introduced the Roman Catholicism and the corrupt Latin Vulgate inside of England. Now, since the English language had developed from the Teutonic invaders who populated Angleland, that's where England got its name, by the way, it was called Angleland, the Latin Vulgate could not be read by the people, meaning that the rest of Europe had a Latin descent and that people could read Latin. But England, those people could not read Latin. And so when they came up with their Latin Bible, well, the people couldn't understand it. So there arose a necessity for translation into the Anglo-Saxon Old English tongue. Now, the Roman church took over a group of people who did not speak the Roman language of Latin. Their Latin Bible didn't have the influence on the people that it did everywhere else because the people couldn't hear it or couldn't understand it or read it. So the popes had a law set up all the way up to the 1960s that stated that mass could only be set in Latin. So if mass can only be done in Latin, imagine all these people who don't speak Latin showing up to church. And they listen to the preacher give his Latin speech. 
That means for hundreds and hundreds of years, people who were forced to go to a false church could not understand the priest and the false church was teaching because they were speaking a language they didn't know. Literally, people went home from church said, I didn't understand a single word he said. Now, this would always keep the country of England separate from the Roman Catholic stranglehold of Europe. Meaning that even though Roman Catholicism was there, it didn't have the stranglehold because the people didn't understand what was going on. They couldn't read it for themselves. And there was always a separation. This is why God had used England later on to be one of the bright and shining lights to give us the word of God. Because it was always a different way of thinking and different way of processing it than what the rest of Europe had. So let's cover some of the translations into Old English. Now remember, we have Old English, we have Middle English, we have Biblical English, Victorian English, and Modern English. So it goes through a lot of different transitions. Let's get some of these translations into Old English. In 670, a man by the uh, name of Cadman, remember this is that A-E that's mixed together, Cadman was a cowherder, so he's just a cowboy. And he worked at a monastery of, by Whitbay, Whitboy, I can't speak, Whitboy and Yorkshire. He had a dream that an angel commanded him to sing songs based off of scriptures. All right, so let's do that. He learned verbally the stories from Genesis and learned the story of the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So someone would tell him the stories and he would listen. Then what he would do is he would listen from Latin and he would go ahead and come up with songs. So he learned the stories of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the apostles. Then he translated these from Latin as it was read to him into the Celtic Saxon language. Then he put these into a song form and went around the countryside singing them to other farmers and peasants. So basically what you have here is you have a cowboy who said, you know what, I need to get these songs or change scripture into songs. Tell me the stories. He'd listen to the stories, then he would translate it and then come up with a song. And then he would go around the prairie as he's keeping uh, watch over the herds and sing it to other farmers and other cowboys. Praise the Lord. It was the, one of the earliest uh, recordings that we could find of someone translating the Bible into the language of the people of that time. So the earliest English rendering of any part of God's word as we has it is a cowboy hearing the Bible taught in Latin then following the cows around and figuring how he can make a song in the language that he knew. He sang the verses he, with, accompanied by his harp and these became very popular to the people who memorized them and spread them about and sang them themselves. Then we have the Psalter of Aldium in 700. Aldium was the Bishop of Sherborne in Dorset which is in South of England. He translated the Psalms in Old English and this was the first real translation of the Bible into what we could somewhat call an English language. So the first one was a work of a guy who tried to translate the Psalms into England, English. Then we have Engelbert in 750 AD. My translation, my own voice is not working today so forgive me. He was a bishop in Northumbria, which is in North England. He lived about the same time as Alderman, which we had just covered just a second ago. He translated the Synoptic Gospels, those are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, into Old English, and a copy of his translation still exists today inside of the British Museum. It looks something like that. This is a 
facsimile of it. And so that's Old English. So believe it or not, that's English. By the way, remember, everybody had to write these by hand. So somebody had to dry the pictures and put this in. But that's what it looks like. Then there was the Venerable Bede. That's a nice name to have. The Venerable Bede. He's known as the father of English history. His greatest work was called the Ecclesiastical History of England. He translated the Gospel Record of John. Tradition says that the very last verses of the Gospel of John was translated and taken down by a stenographer as the venerable Bede laid on his bed. So as he's dying, he's taking his last breath, and his last breath was the translation of the Gospel of John. What a way to go, huh? Giving the Word of God to somebody with the last breath that you have on earth. That's the way to do it. Then there was the translations of King Alfred the Great. Now, if you love biographies and you want to study someone of history, get a hold of King Alfred the Great. He did so much for the British people to help set up England as we know it. King Alfred, who was the King of England from 870 to 901 AD, his translation, <laughs> he loved books. Everyone should love books. And his favorite book was the Word of God. And so for the benefit of his people, the king personally translated the Ten Commandments, the Psalms, and much of the four Gospels. He believed the greatest legacy he could leave his people upon his death was to give the people the Word of God into their own language. That's a good king, isn't it? And so we still have some stuff from King Alfred the Great. That's his work there. I mean, that's English, old English. But that's some of his work. And then we have the Linserfarn Gospels in five, or 950 AD. This was a dirt, uh, work done by a priest by the name of Aldred. He put together an interlineal, that means in between the lines, Anglo-Saxon paraphrase of the gospel written over a copy of the old Latin version. What does that mean? Well, he's using the old uh, Latin version, not the corrupt Latin version. He uses the one that comes from Antioch. He's using the correct text. Then this Latin version is double spaced. So you would double space it. And in between those spaces, he would give a general translation to kind of explain in English what was happening inside of this language so you could read it for yourself and still have the original copy there. So the people could read it for themselves. This is what it would look like. So again, Old English. He received the Old Latin version from, from uh, Edenfirth, the bishop of Linsenfarn. Thus is why it's called the Linsenfarn Bible, because it was translated from a Bible that was given to him. Then we have the Rushworth Gospels. This was done by an Irishman by the name of McRegal in about 1000 AD. That's what his would look like. The Wessex Gospels, that was also translated about 1000 AD, these are the oldest English Gospels still in existence that we could have and find, and that's what it would look like. Aren't you glad that we have copies and can look for ourselves and can't read it, but... <laughs> then we had Alfric, Archbishop of Canterbury, who was about 1000 AD. He was dubbed the Grammarian. How would you like to have that title? You're the Grammarian. You're the grammar person. He translated the first five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Esther, Job, and part of Kings inside of the Old Testament. 
King Alfred wanted him to translate any books dealing with warfare to try to instill inside of the English a fighting spirit. So here's what the king did. The king came to him and said, listen, go find some books and I want you to translate them so we can get our troops to read them. And when they read them, they're going to be ready to fight. They're going to be ready to go. We need to instill something in them. He says, okay, I got you. The best thing I can do is give you the Old Testament. And they read the Old Testament, they'll be ready to go. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and that's what his ended up looking like. Put some fighting spirit. Can't read it for us, but they could at least. Then we had translations in the Middle English. So now we have a transition from Old English to Middle English. Middle English replaced Old English following the Norman invasion which happened in 1066. So once again the British Isles were invaded, this time by the Normans. And the Normans had a completely different language than the Anglo-Saxons or the Celtics or the anybody who came before. And now they're going to try to merge those languages together. The Norman invasion of England with the establishment of Norman rule also brought a return to Latin of English Christianity. And so when they came over, they also brought and said, English Christians, you need to read Latin just like our Roman brothers over the other side of the continent. It took about 200 years after that for a new English translation to emerge. So a stranglehold kind of went on them for 200 years when the Normans came. But eventually the people said, well, we don't speak Latin. We want to read the Bible. We need to get the Bible into our own language. The first of these came in 1215 by an Augustinian monk by the name of Orm. That's a nice name. You need a name for a child. There you go. Orm. He did a a metrical, which means musical, paraphrase of the Gospels and a book of Acts to be used in church liturgy. So basically he's coming up with basically hymns that are based off of scripture songs so people could sing the songs according to scripture. You know, sing the actual words of scripture in songs. I love scripture songs, by the way. He used Anglo-Saxon words with Norman syntax and grammar. All that means is this is one of the most unreadable things you could ever put together. Because it's putting two languages together that don't work well. It became known as the Ormulum. That's a nice name. One of these manuscripts still exists. And that's what it would look like. So that was the Ormuller. William Shoreham was a parish priest in Kent. He translated the Psalms in Southern English. That's the backwater uh, dialect of England. (laughs) Richard Roll, the Hermit of Hampole. These are cool names now. England always has cool names. So, The Hermit of Hampole produced a translation of the Psalms from the Latin Vulgate. Uh, John Travessa from Cornwall translated the entire Bible from Latin into Middle English. But then we come to the main event, what we're here for today, John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was born in 320 AD in Yorkshire, England. He attended Oxford University around 340 and he graduated at 350. Now some of you, that might be an encouragement. It took him 10 years to graduate college. There's hope for everyone. He got his PhD in about 1367 
we'll just do a quick brief history of him and then go back to uh, specifics. He became the director of Leatherworth University there, 1374. He lectured at Oxford until 1382. He lived during a time of a great power struggle between Parliament of England and the Pope. So there's a big fight going on between the English government and the Roman Catholic Pope. The English people deeply resented the Pope's support of the French against the English. There was something called the Hundred Years' War. And it was a war between France and England to determine who was going to be the real power of Europe during the time. Now, the Pope's not the real power during this time, but the Pope backs France. And by the way, the Pope's got a hard job. When a war breaks out, he's got to figure out who is going to back. And if he backs the winner, well, then they owe him a favor. But then there's always the times when he backs the loser, like uh, backing the Nazis against the United States. That kind of set them back just for a little bit. But in here, this Pope backed the French. And so when the English won, they were not happy with the Pope and what he did. The Pope had sent spies into England. He sent infiltrators into their army. He sent money and troops into France, all trying to help destroy England. So again, the English people were not very happy with the Pope during this time. So we understand that God uses circumstances like this to instill in the hearts of the English people a desire to get away from all things Roman. We don't want to do anything with the church. We don't want their thing. We don't want their authority. They're just mad. Whatever we could do. Well, it just so happens that there's a guy named Wycliffe who says, I agree. And he stirs things up. So God, at the same time, God is raising up a man to translate the Bible that's going to take the English people away from the Latin Vulgate of the Roman Catholic Church. And he's going to give them an English Bible which the people are ready for. We don't want a Roman Bible. We want an English Bible. And they're ready for it. They're looking forward to it. They want something like this. It doesn't help that in 1366, Pope Urban V, someone said that sounds like a rapper's name, Pope Urban V, he asked for back taxes from England. He says, well, England, you haven't paid your back taxes in a couple hundred years. I think you guys need to catch back up. Well, the English people did not respond well to that either. So much so that Parliament not only refused to pay, but they passed a law that no king of England would ever pay the Pope one penny without the permission of the people. They said, it's not going to happen. Someone called this the nana-nana-boo-boo law. Not going to happen. Wycliffe showed up as a vocal supporter of the people against the Pope. So he begins to preach messages and begins to say, no, we don't need to have the Pope ruling over us anyways. He seized upon the disarray to hammer away at the Church of Rome. In 1377, Wycliffe sent a statement listing 19 heresies of the Church of Rome and he mailed them to the Pope. Now, may I remind you there's not a lot of people sending letters to the Pope. And he read it himself. And he wasn't happy. The Pope countered by issuing five papal bulls. Meaning that he says, listen here. Wycliffe wants to tell me where I'm doing wrong. Well, listen, I'm going to make five declarations that is going to say how stupid he is. (laughs) So none of these bulls had addressed doctrine. But they all attacked Wycliffe. Personally, isn't that how it goes? They can't defend doctrine, so they got to tell that you're mean and you're stupid. Well, that has nothing to do with anything. It has everything to do with what the Bible has to say. 
Wycliffe was protected by harm by John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, who was a very wealthy and powerful man. For 11 years, Wycliffe engaged in political and ecclesiastical warfare against the papacy. Then in 1378, he began to wage in a doctrinal battle. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Now, the first criticism by Wycliffe was the Roman church's teaching that you could be saved by good works. He said, no, 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 no. You can't be saved by good works. Otherwise, why would Jesus have to die? Jesus died in vain if you were saved by works. Jesus dying on the cross died because we could not be saved by works. And by the way, all the apostles' writings would be false if you could be saved by works. A second criticism by Wycliffe was against indulgences. Now, if you don't know what an indulgence is, it's a purchase agreement that you could buy an indulgence in exchange for a time that you could sin without penalty. So it goes something like this. The Catholic Church, local Catholic Church says, we need to build a bigger statue of Mary. The one over there got a new statue and everyone's going over there. We need to get a bigger statue so we get people coming over here. Now in order to punt pay for this, what we'll do is we'll sell you an indulgence. That for the low price of $50, I'll give you five year indulgence, get out of jail free card, that you could do whatever you want for five years and never be accountable for God for it. Here you go. But if you want a better deal, give me $100 and I'll give you a 10-year indulgence. Or if you give me $250, I'll give you a lifetime pass for you to do whatever you want and you'll never be accountable for God. You're already automatically forgiven. What a great deal! I mean, Baptist people, we don't sell indulgences. You just go ahead and sin anyways and don't confess it and you're fine. (laughs) But that's what they did in order to raise money. They would sell indulgences. And Wycliffe says, no, this is horrible. No, absolutely not. A third criticism by Wycliffe was against praying to saints. He says, listen, there's only one mediator between God and man. I've looked all my Bible. There's nothing about praying to some dead person. I'm praying to a living Savior. What are you getting this all from? You can't find it in the Bible. A fourth criticism was against the confessional. Now, if you're not Roman Catholic, you may not appreciate this, but they have a place where the Roman Catholic priest would be on the other side of the screen. And it's not an idea of of just letting them tell whatever they want. They would prompt them. All right, glad to see you, Frank. How are you doing? How are you doing, Father? Well, how long has it been since your last confessional? It's been three weeks. Good. Well, during this three weeks, have you lusted after anybody? Yes, I lusted after one. Okay, well, during that time, did you lie to anyone? Yes. Were those lies attached uh, to your lusting? Yeah. Well, did you lie to your wife? And what they would do is they would talk to them and try to drag all this out. Now, where it may sound good and cleansing, guess who also has all that information? And so when the local politician happens to um, get into office and the pope or the priest knows all of his sins when the priest gets in trouble the person's not going to prosecute or try to send judgment after them because whoa they know all my stuff I, how can i do anything against him and it became an idea of control and wycliffe says this is wicked this is absolutely wicked a fifth criticism by Wycliffe was that all church offices above pastor and deacons unscriptural he says listen this idea of popes and and cardinals and bishops and what you call bishops, that, that's not in the Bible. 
there's two offices, a pastor and a deacon. A pastor has synonyms, bishop, an overseer, has the idea of a shepherd, it has the idea of an elder, but there's only two offices. Anything above that, that's not in the scripture. Why are you doing having all of these cardinals and popes running around? It's not found in the Bible. That made the pope really happy, by the way. Wycliffe also rebuked the doctrine of transubstantiation. Remember, transubstantiation is the idea that the actual cracker is the body of Christ. It's not a cracker, it's the body of Christ. So much so that if you ever see inside of a mass that they drop the crackers, they actually have to do a ceremony because they just drop the body of Christ on the ground and they have to ceremonial clean it because people need to be able to eat Jesus and drink his blood. And that's the idea of transubstantiation. And uh, Wycliffe says, no, absolutely not. This is, this, no, no, this is just a cracker. It's a picture of what Christ did. It's not the body of Christ. So he said that Jesus Christ is not literally present in the wafer and you're not crucifying Jesus once again. By the way, that's the teaching that they have, that they have to continually sacrifice Jesus afresh in order for him to continue to save for our sins. When Jesus died, he died once and for all, a point action in time that had everlasting effects. And he says, you're not turning the wine into the blood of Christ. It's just grape juice. But for all of his troubles, he was expelled from Oxford University because he denied trans transubstantiation. He lost his job at the university because he actually hurt their feelings too with the doctrine. Well, that's how it goes. Wycliffe's popularity among the people of the English nobility protected him from personal harm. So even though people were out to get him, he was always protected. He suffered a stroke while preaching in his church in Lutterworth on December 28th and died three days later. He died in the pulpit as most pastors want to try to do. I don't know why preachers do that side thing. I think that would scare the people more just to watch the preacher fall dead rather than... That's, you know, how it is. It sounds exciting on the preacher's point of view, but I'm sure for the rest of the church it's kind of uh, PTSD and all kinds of issues going on. But... Now, Wycliffe realized that the best way to break the power of Rome was for everyone to be able to read the Bible for themselves. He said, what sort of antichrist is this who, the sorrow, who to the sorrow of Christian men is so bold as to prohibit the laity from learning this holy lesson which is so earnestly commanded by God? Every man is bound to learn that he may be saved. But every layman who shall be saved is a very priest of God's own making. And every priest is bound to be a very priest. He says, listen, if you come to know Christ as your Savior, you have access to God. You don't need any man to go between you. You could read the Bible for yourself and understand it. You could pray to God to him and he will hear your prayers. You don't have to go through anyone else. He translated the New Testament in 1380. He translated the Old Testament in 1382. He translated both of them from the Latin Vulgate into Middle English. Now, this is important. Wycliffe, we appreciate his efforts, but he translated it from the corrupt text. Now, he, we don't use him as part of our lineage, but we do recognize that he was very important to help give a desire for the English people to have the Bible into their own language so they could read it for themselves. And we appreciate his efforts. He was assisted by other scholars in the work, including Nicholas Hefford, who translated more than half of the Old Testament. Now, the varying styles of the individual translations were harmonized by, the name, uh, by a man by the name of John Purvey. 
Purvey took away the literal rendering, but made it more readable. Again, sometimes when you first do a translation, it becomes very choppy because it doesn't use the same syntax and the same language as we have. And sometimes there's the linguistics part of it to try to make it so you could read it. Because we speak a little bit differently than other countries. And that's just what he was doing, was cleaning it up so that way people could read it and it makes sense or not sound so choppy and awful. Now, every copy of this Bible had to be made by hand. This is before the printing press. So because of this, they were all very expensive. And so this would be an example of the Wycliffe Bible. So someone had to write that by hand and all of that into Middle English. It took an experienced scribe 10 months to complete one Bible. Imagine the hand cramps after that. 10 months to carefully copy God's Word. Once they came out, by the way, they were widely circulated Everyone wanted to read and spend time with the Bible. Now, God had already established Wycliffe's reputation and used that reputation so the people had a great interest in the Bible. It'd be like, hey, did you hear Wycliffe wrote, uh, translated a Bible? Really? I love Wycliffe. I definitely, and people had an interest in it because God had already established him as a great figure, a great reputation to the people. In one case, a man paid a load of hay for the privilege of borrowing a Wycliffe Bible for one hour. Now, that makes you think, how precious is the Bible to you? He, I don't know how much a load of hay would cost, but I'm assuming that it was not inexpensive. It was probably very expensive. And he says, I just want to spend an hour with it. Can I trade you this load of hay just to spend one hour in the Bible? Have you ever been that desperate to read your Bible? You have it available for free. People were doing whatever they could to get their hands on a Bible. A copy cost a man by the name of Nicholas Bellward a sum that was considered a sufficient annual salary for a man living in that day. Now, how desperate are you for your Bible? Would you be willing to pay one year's salary just to get a Bible of your very own? We're spoiled here. And people were hungry. They just wanted to have the word of God in their own language. They wanted to be able to read it for themselves. So he paid one year's salary just to get a copy of the word. Hereford and Purvey were put in jail for their part in the work. So imagine that. They were translated, translating the Bible. And for their troubles, they got put in jail. Because they happened to translate God's word. Almost like Satan was not happy about this. Several friends of Wycliffe that helped distribute the Bible were burned at the stake with their Bibles around their necks. How much do you love your Bible? Are you willing to die for your Bible? They were, and they had their very own personal Bibles on their neck as they burned and they died. They cared and they wanted God's word for themselves. It meant so much for them. The Synod of Oxford in 1408 forbade the reading of Wycliffe Bible. Now again, what a corrupt system. The Synod is the Catholic version inside of Oxford. They said, listen, we forbid anyone from reading the Bible. You can't read your Bible. What kind of Christian religion will forbid people to read the Bible? There's almost something to it. A corrupt system. 
The Council of Constance in 1415 condemned John Huss. If you don't know anything about John Huss, you should learn something about John Huss. John Huss is a powerful martyr, follower of, of Wycliffe. And uh, this council had condemned uh, John Huss. And had also condemned his wife, Lady Huss. If you haven't read that story about Lady Huss and her uh, path to martyrdom, that's powerful. But the same council that condemned John Huss also condemned Wycliffe, even though he was dead. So what they did, 44 years after Wycliffe died, his bones were dug up, put on trial, condemned for heresy, burned and scattered into the uh, river Swift. So much they even have artwork about it. So they dug him up, they burned his body and put it in the river. He's dead already. Can you imagine God saying, hey John, come here, watch this. <laughs> Look at that. Can you imagine that? Who do you think? I mean, the Catholics down there are like, thou show them. Show them what? <laughs> uh, thou teach them. Okay. But man, they hated God. Them translating God's word for the people to read it for themselves. They absolutely hated it. 30 manuscripts of his original translation still exist. About 140 manuscripts of Purvey's revision still exist. Now Wycliffe has been called the morning star of the Reformation. Why? Because 150 years before the Reformation, here is Wycliffe who's already pronouncing to the Pope that he's wrong. So people attribute him as the spark of the Reformation, the morning star of the Reformation. His version influenced the wording of the authorized version in a number of places. We know that Tinsdale, who we're going to speak about next time, uh, was very appreciative of it. And we appreciate how he uh, put some of his language. But remember that spelling was not standardized. So whenever you put a word, you just spell it however you want. Let me give an example as we close this out. Here is an example of the Lord's Prayer in Wycliffe's Bible. So let's see if we could follow this, all right? So the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, here's what he said. Our Father, that art in heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come to thy will be done on earth as in heavens. Good. We'll get to this part. Aren't you, don't you wish you were in those days you could just spell whatever words you want it, however you want it? Forget that. It makes it easier on everyone. Just, you know, that sounds good. Here's the last part of it. Give to us this day our bread or utter substance and forgive us our debts as we forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptations, temptation, but deliver us from evil. <laughs> we do appreciate the work that Wycliffe did. And this is part of the history. The people were hungry for a Bible of their own. They did not want to be under the command of the Roman uh, Catholic Church. And so this was where the spark of Reformation began. This is where it came. The people were hungry. I want to see the Bible for myself. I don't want some church and I don't want some man telling me what the Bible says. I want to read it for myself. So much that they were willing to do whatever it took to give a bale of hay, to give them a year's salary, whatever they could. They would even die to have the Word of God in their hands. 
How much does the Word of God mean to you? Is it something that just sits on your shelf and gathers dust? Does it sit in the back of your car in between church services? Is this something that you want to read and desire to read? There are people all around the world even today that would do anything and everything just to have the Bible in their hand. And we have so much freedom and we have so much access to the Bibles. We have it all over the place that because it doesn't cost us anything, we don't appreciate it like we should. When people gave their lives to give us the Bible that we have in our hand, we appreciate what God has done throughout history to give us His Word. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.